At first, when I was looking at the BRICS news, it all felt a little humdrum. It felt like a little bit of an anticlimax. There had been a lot of hype, as we all know, on everything that was going to take place there, whether it was mainstream channels, whether it was YouTube, podcasts, and everything. It all felt a little kind of underwhelming, shall we say. And hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. However, as I look closer, as I was getting ready for this show, it started to get more interesting, and I started with the map. And a few observations began to occur to me as I zoomed out here, looking at the world map. And when you do, you start looking, okay, there is Russia, there is China, there is India, there is Brazil. And there is South Africa. And actually, if you're by a computer, I encourage you to do this. So what you see is the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, interestingly spread quite widely across the world. When you put Russia and China together, it takes up a surprising amount. Now, what do we know? What was announced? There were countries that were added to the BRICS, and they were Argentina. Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. So when you go back to your map and you look, it is hard to avoid the importance that is being placed on energy on these additional new members. Iran, of course, is a, you know, massive oil producer, at least in potential. Saudi Arabia, of course, as everybody knows, is a massive oil producer. You look at the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, on a map, and interestingly, what do you see, say, with Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates? They basically surround the Persian Gulf. There is Kuwait, which is fairly small, And Iraq has a tiny little entrance into the Persian Gulf, and it is very small, relatively speaking. Other than that, you have Qatar, you have Bahrain, but I mean, again, kind of smaller countries here. But if you look at the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, they have basically surrounded the Persian Gulf, which is quite interesting. And then you move a little bit westward, and you see Egypt. Now, I looked in ChatGPT, and I don't claim to be some geopolitical expert, but I just find these observations worth sharing because, frankly, for all the hours of YouTube and news consumption, I'm not seeing any of this being discussed. I have seen, okay, they are uh, energy-rich countries, many of these places, but very few observations on the map. Now, if you look at Egypt... And I did a search here on ChatGPT, what is the geopolitical importance of Egypt? And it is quite interesting here. What role does Egypt play geopolitically? And it says here, one, strategic location. Egypt controls the Suez Canal, one of the world's most crucial waterways, which connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea and provides the shortest maritime route between Europe and the lands lying around the Indian and Western Pacific Oceans. Control over the canal has been a focal point in several international conflicts. So as I did more research, the Suez Canal, from my understanding, and feel free to write in if you understand differently, the Suez Canal, which Egypt controls, is basically how oil and natural gas gets to Europe through the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal. So not only have they surrounded the Persian Gulf, and then you look at Ethiopia, which is right along there, they have surrounded lightly, not entirely, but lightly, they have surrounded the Red Sea with Egypt on one side, Sudan, who is not included, Eritrea, but you have Ethiopia right behind there. And then you have Saudi Arabia across the Red Sea, and of course, Yemen at the bottom. You have this very, not complete, but a significant surrounding of both the Persian Gulf 
and the Red Sea, all in one stroke, all in one meeting. So those five countries here that were added, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Ethiopia, and the United Arab Emirates, it seems to be a huge power play, or shall we say energy play, speculating out loud here. Then we go to Argentina, and we look at the map here, and you see Brazil, who is, of course, already in the BRICS. Then you put Brazil together with Argentina, and you have a good chunk of South America covered. So you start to zoom out a bit, and we'll come back to Argentina in a second, because Argentina is actually fascinating in its own right. You zoom out again, and you start to look at the map, and you see Russia and China, and then you add India, no small player there, then you add Iran, then you add Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, then you add Egypt, and then you add Ethiopia, and you are starting to have what looks like one speculation you could say is the beginning of a kind of isolation of Europe. You know, you are seeing quite the trade network. And this is another important, very important point. Lavrov, Sergei Lavrov, Russian foreign minister, did a press conference, and he said something I would think is very important in terms of how the BRICS understand themselves. As he says here in the middle of this press conference, BRICS has a huge economic potential, but calling BRICS an economic club is trying to belittle its real significance. Because we have to ask ourselves, is this simply about trade? That's kind of like the you know, as I like to call it, the manifest content. I mean, isn't this about trade? Well, here's his next line. Its political declaration clearly states our demand for the democratization of international relations, the enhancement of the role of the global South in the global governance mechanisms. So Lavrov is very careful to emphasize that this is no mere economic club. This is a political declaration. That is from Lavrov. Again, BRICS has a huge economic potential, but calling BRICS an economic club is trying to belittle its real significance. Its political declaration clearly states our demand for the democratization of international relations, the enhancement of the role of the global south, in the global governance mechanisms. It asserts that we will abide by international law and the UN Charter in its entirety and the interrelated norms and principles contained therein. Now, we don't necessarily need to believe every word of this, but I do think it's important that we understand how they or how Lavrov, at least, or how the BRICS understand themselves, or what they are trying to say about themselves, real or not. So, quite interesting. Now, just to go to Argentina here, and you have to love ChatGPT here. So, if you look at Argentina, what is the geopolitical importance of Argentina? Geographic location. Its location grants it access to both the Atlantic Ocean and the Southern Ocean. You know, what else is the importance of Argentina? If you look at the map, you know what you start to see? And wild as this might sound, we're talking about the deep sea mining, talk about mining the moon. Well, if we're going to talk about those things, why don't we talk about Antarctica? Because if you look at Argentina, it is right there beside Chile, and it is really not that far from Antarctica. So it appears to me that this was all very carefully thought out on who was going to be included. And now let's just finally finish up on Argentina. Argentina is rich in natural resources, this is ChatGPT4, including minerals, fossil fuels, especially shale, oil, and gas in the Vaca Muerta formation, fertile land, and fresh water. Its Pampas region is one of the world's primary agricultural areas, producing significant amounts of soybeans, wheat, and beef. It used to be one of the world's largest economies. 
I think it used to be like the fifth largest economy in the world. That's just going from memory at the turn of last century in like 1900. So it has the potential to be a major economic power. Also, again here, it says the scientific and Antarctic role. Argentina is one of the leading nations in terms of Antarctic research. It maintains several bases in Antarctica and plays an active role in Antarctic governance and treaties. And finally, actually, it also has nuclear capabilities. It is a peaceful nuclear program, but it is an exporter of nuclear technology for peaceful purposes, which gives it a unique position in regional geopolitics. So these are all quite fascinating things to learn. Now, finally, finally, Ethiopia. What is the geopolitical importance of Ethiopia? Historical significance, okay, we did hear that on some of our channels that I have been watching here, is one of the oldest continuous civilizations in the world. Ethiopia is the only African nation that has never been colonized, but its strategic location, Ethiopia's position in the Horn of Africa, places it at the crossroads of the Middle East and Africa. Its proximity to the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, key routes for global maritime trade, enhances its strategic relevance. So it's almost like we see, again, all of the Persian Gulf being surrounded, not entirely, but largely. And then we see the main routes of energy into Europe through the Suez Canal, which is Egypt, as well as into Africa, arguably Ethiopia playing a major role, at least according to ChatGPT. And it seems to me that this is all about controlling the energy that this is the way that these countries want to resist Western hegemony. So quite fascinating indeed. And finally, Ethiopia is an upstream country on the Nile and is home to the Blue Nile, which contributes a significant portion of the Nile's water. The construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam has made Ethiopia a focal point in the geopolitics of the Nile, particularly concerning water rights and negotiation with downstream countries like Sudan and Egypt. So quite an interesting dynamic when you zoom out, because just because a nation, say like Egypt or Ethiopia, where you don't necessarily think of as oil powers, it doesn't mean that they don't play strategic roles in the distribution of energy, whether it's oil or natural gas. You know, if you had to speculate, one would think that this might be what's going on. So we have a wonderful show for you here today. We have Pear Tree Canada founder and CEO, Ron Birnbaum, for this week's CEO Spotlight. And this is a wonderful interview where Ron is discussing how basically, long story short, on how the flow-through share structure, which has helped exploration companies get funded in Canada, how that is being undermined by new tax legislation that is being proposed in the 2023 budget. So Ron Birnbaum is calling our attention to this issue. So a fascinating CEO spotlight with Ron Birnbaum. And for our feature content, we have Satish Rao, Managing Director at Clario, who gives his take on how the United States is doing in regard to its critical mineral strategy. And he has some very important observations that, frankly, it seems would be very wise to listen to if they want to achieve their very aggressive goals of becoming independent in regard to critical minerals in the coming two years, as we saw in the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, as soon as 2025. The U.S. wants to wean itself off metals from countries it deems basically unfriendly. So, as we know, to start a mine takes minimum seven or eight years in this business. So Satish has some ideas on how to move forward and how this may not happen unless certain things change. As he says, we need to move faster. Finally, the Northern Miner Canadian Mining Symposium is occurring in London on October 12th and 13th. It is a major event. It features Robert Friedland from Ivanhoe Mines, as well as many top speakers in the industry. It is going to be fantastic. Go to events.northernminer.com to learn more about how you can attend this conference. 
and it is right around the corner. It is six weeks away. With that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Ron Birnbaum, founder and CEO of Pear Tree Canada, for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Ron Birnbaum, founder and CEO of Pear Tree Canada, to the Northern Miner podcast. Ron, welcome to the show. Good morning. Well, it's great to have you. It's definitely the first time I've talked to you for a CEO spotlight, so we're thrilled to have you. Now, tell us a little bit, for listeners that might not know, what is Pear Tree Canada? Pear Tree uh, was set up about 16 years ago. We are the single largest enabler and source of exploration capital under the flow-through share regime in Canada in a format that we developed and took to the tax authorities in which our high net worth clients buy flow-through shares for their tax value immediately donated and sold to global investors. So what we did is by splitting the tax value of a flow-through share from the underlying equity of that share, because a flow-through share is nothing more than a common share with the use of funds being used in the ground for exploration purposes, we were able to then attract global investors into investing in Canadian early stage exploration. We do approximately 60 to 65 financings a year. And in each of the last three years, it's the total amount of the financings are in excess of $500 million, which puts us around 40% of the entire exploration market in Canada. Okay, excellent. In other words, you basically help facilitate financing exploration companies through tax efficiencies of sorts. Is that a fair characterization? That's a very fair characterization. The joke is that we buy high with a premium to market, extract the tax value, donate, and then sell low. So the best example might be earlier this year, a company called Siona. It's a lithium miner in Quebec with exploration properties as well, in which we purchased on behalf of our clients a $50 million, $50 million of flow-through shares, which were then donated and sold for approximately $32 million, mainly to Australian investors. And so $32 million in Australia results in $50 million of economic activity. And the joy of the flow-through or the elegance of the flow-through regime is that a deduction by myself, because I buy flow-through for myself, as do our clients, my deduction is then results in a taxable event in northern or remote communities. So a deduction in Toronto is an income inclusion in Timmins. And the flow-through regime has been around and has been very successful since uh, the 1970s. That is very interesting. And of course, anybody that's been in the mining scene has heard of Pear Tree, but it's really great to get some background, especially from a founder here. So tell us now the recent federal budget in Canada, the 2023 budget, there are concerns out there that changes to the alternative minimum tax or AMT is going to impact exploration companies and the financing of exploration companies. Can you speak a little bit about that? Adrian, it's a very good point. So to step back a little bit, tax incentives work, disincentives work in the opposite direction. So the best example of a recent tax incentive that's been extremely successful is in the 2022 budget, the federal government introduced the critical mineral exploration tax credit which is a 30% credit when exploration is being conducted for critical minerals, 15 of the critical minerals, including lithium, cobalt, copper, nickel. That tax credit was extraordinarily successful. From April of 2022 to the end of March 23, in Canada, approximately 38 transactions, totaling $350 million, of which Peartree did $225 million. So we know this space intimately. That's all accretive. There was virtually no investment the year before in flow-through shares, other than perhaps uranium in Saskatchewan. In the current new budget in 2023, the federal government introduced changes to AMT, to the Alternative Minimum Tax Regime which will have a significant negative impact on the ability of our investors to invest in critical minerals and more broadly in flow-through shares. First of all, it's, it's highly concentrated. We have approximately 1,100 investors who funded 
$225 million of critical minerals. That's a typical subscription of about a quarter of a million dollars. In order for that investor to have bought a quarter of a million dollars, they needed about $800,000 of high rate income, you know, T4 income, say. Under the rules that were just introduced, the AMT rules that were just introduced, which are effective January of 2024, that same investor is going to need a million two, and that's not going to happen. So the result is that same investor, rather than buying $239,000, will buy about $160,000. It's a reduction in, in investment in critical minerals in Canada of approximately a third. In our case, it would be $75 million less of investment by our clients, and we're, we're not the only player in this field. So I think the AMT rules as drafted, and the, the government, to their credit, is looking for input formally by September the 8th. But I think we all, in our sector, I think we all need to be contacting our members of parliament to say these AMT rules inadvertently have taken the wind out of the uh, the sales of what is otherwise a, a tax incentive that is needed and has, has demonstrated that it works. I mean, it's $350 million more a year later and you know, a dollar of flow through deduction by an urban investor is a dollar of taxable activity in northern or remote communities. Well, this is quite important, too, from the explorers' perspectives, because, I mean, we're hearing they are still struggling to raise money. So just as the government, I guess, in other legislation, say in critical minerals legislation, is trying to encourage the development of these exploration companies and these projects, you're basically saying, on the other hand, there's an unintended consequence here, basically, is what's going on. As they try and clamp down on tax freebies, so to speak, they are perhaps unintendedly reducing the ability of investors to basically support exploration companies. Is that correct? I think that's very accurate. I think you know the alternative minimum tax regime, the AMT, has been around since 1986. And it basically says, if you're making call it a million dollars a year, irrespective of how much you might buy in flow through shares. You know, if you bought a million dollars of flow through shares, you should have no taxable income. You have a million dollars of deduction. But in 86, the deputy minister of finance, a fellow by the name of Stanley Hart, who spent the last five years of his life in our firm, brought in this legislation to say the government has cash flow needs. And therefore, we are going to have a second calculation and if you're making a million dollars, you're going to pay us 225 for 250,000 a year, no matter what. And to the extent that you've got additional credits or deductions, you can carry them forward for seven years and then they, they fall off the table. The rules that were introduced this year that are effective beginning in next year changes that minimum 250 to about 320, 330. So about a third of your sort of your minimum tax, you know, once you get over a couple of hundred thousand dollars and the impact on those who buy flow-through shares is very significant. I mean, every one of our clients is AMT constrained. I mean, we have people on staff that do the calculations for our clients. And basically the client conversation invariably is, how much can I buy this year and use up all the deductions and credits? And this will result in a reduction by our clients and you know most others in this country are similarly constrained. So we're going to see, unless changed, and hopefully it is uh, unintended, we're going to see a, you know, the, the challenges in the industry and in the sector increase as a result of this change in the tax law. Fascinating. So as we're wrapping up here, then, what do you think should be done? Should there be some sort of provision? Should it be redrawn? Do you have any thoughts on kind of how you would put this together? We've been thinking a lot about this. I mean, we're a registered uh, lobbyist federally and in two provinces, and we have a full-time GR manager as part of our firm. And so you know, we're, we're writing submissions, and we're happy to help others write their submissions. But really, anybody in the exploration sector should be contacting their members of parliament and simply saying this, uh, th th hopefully it was unintended, but it really will have a negative impact on the availability of capital in Canada. And, you know, the flow-through regime, remarkably, is a financing advantage that we in Canada have over every other jurisdiction in the world. It's really astounding. Other sectors would like to copy it in Canada. But one thing about the exploration industry is if we're successful in finding a resource large enough and of sufficient quality to build a mine, 
you know, doesn't really matter who owns that mine. It's most all of the economic activity and benefits and tax owing, including royalties, are remain in Canada. So if I were suggesting, you know, what to do, call your member of parliament, say, I think you may not have looked at it. We're happy to help out. And we're happy to, to help anyone. Um, all our contact information is on our website, which is just peartreecanada.com. You can write me a note. I'll see it. My email address is there. We have a full-time GR vice president on board, Alana Clark. Anybody who wants some assistance in, in writing a submission or needs more information can reach out to me or to her. Our information is on our website. All the contact information is there, including email and phone numbers. And it's just peartreecanada.com. What we are lobbying for and submitting to both federal government and to Quebec, who has a, a separate tax regime, is that the AMT rules, if implemented the way they're presented, and the legislation has been published as of about a week ago now, will have a significant negative impact on exploration in Canada. And uh, I think we just have to bring it to the attention of the public authorities in the hope that they recognize that it was an unintended consequence and they'll roll it back and carve out the flow through regime because it makes sense to maintain an incentive that works as opposed to disincentive that will reduce the effectiveness of that incentive. Exactly. Like it sounds like the AMT or alternative minimum tax will ultimately undermine the flow through share structure. Yeah, I mean, if you have less tax value, if your cost of investing in what is otherwise venture capital at its riskiest what results in less of an appetite to invest or to invest on terms that will be much more dilutive for exploration companies. Excellent. Ron Birnbaum, founder and CEO of Pear Tree Canada, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you, Adrian. It's been a pleasure. And turning to the website, India's Modi urges nations with critical minerals to see custodianship as global responsibility. This is Reuters via mining.com. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi said there is a risk of a, quote, new model of colonialism, end quote, if nations with critical minerals do not regard custodianship as a, quote, global responsibility, end quote, as firms race to secure resources central to energy transition goals. So it made me wonder to myself, who is he directing this towards? And I realized at first I thought it was the West, but then I thought maybe it's China. And here's a quote from Modi. Quote, we are experiencing this challenge for critical materials, rare earths, and others. These things are abundant in some places and not present at all in others, but all of humankind needs them. End quote. Modi said at a Business 20 summit in New Delhi on Sunday, continuing, quote, the ones who have them, if they don't see that as a global responsibility, then this will promote a new model of colonialism. This is my warning. End quote. Then a couple of paragraphs down, China accounted for 70% of world mine production of rare earths in 2022 and is home to at least 85% of global processing capacity. This year, it imposed export restrictions on gallium and germanium for use in computer chips and other components, a move widely seen as retaliation for U.S. curbs on technology sales to China and which raised concerns over more restrictions. You know, I thought India just banned the export of rice. If I am not mistaken, let me just quickly check that because, frankly, if India bans the export of rice but then is complaining about lithium or rare earths, it seems a little much. So yeah, last month, India surprised buyers by imposing a ban on exports of widely consumed non-Basmati white rice following a ban on broken rice exports last year. And now there's a 20% duty on parboiled rice with immediate effect. This is August 25th. So let's just look at the data. So August 27th, then he's making a speech saying how critical minerals should be a global responsibility while simultaneously banning the exports of rice. It seems like odd timing, let's just put it that way. Continuing on, upcoming elections in near-bankrupt Argentina could finally unlock the country's huge mineral projects. This is Tom Azapardi at the Northern Miner, a great writer who's been contributing for years, food, energy, and now minerals. In a world where competition for raw materials is only increasing, Argentina is blessed with an abundance of natural resources. 
but the country's nationalist politics and macroeconomic troubles have so far prevented it from realizing its potential, especially in copper, despite its prospective geology along the Andes Mountains. There is no doubt that the resources exist. Decades of mineral exploration have identified perhaps the largest collection of undeveloped copper projects from First Quantum Minerals' Taka Taka, Glencore's Pachon, and Aldebaran Resources' Altar. Not surprising, given it shares the same geology as neighboring Chile, the world's top producer of the metal. You know, it just adds to our earlier discussion on Argentina, doesn't it? But so far, only one major mine has made it into production, Glencore's Bajo de la Alumbrera, where operations are now winding down. Others are approaching construction decisions. London Mining has already begun early works at its Jose Maria project, while it seeks a partner. McEwen Mining could list its Los Azulis project in a new company to raise funds for the development. But major investments have been delayed as mining companies wait for the tangle of capital controls, import bans, and export taxes imposed by successive governments to be lifted. And we have a quote from Miguel Martin, an industry consultant, quote, Politicians here have always talked about the mineral resources, but not about the tools needed to develop them. End quote. Mining can work in Argentina. Investment is booming in the northwest provinces of Catamarca, who he and Salta as companies from around the world race to extract lithium from the region's high-altitude salt flats. While development in Bolivia and Chile, which have larger resources, has been hindered by policies designed to increase state participation, Argentina's more laissez-faire approach should see production rise tenfold to almost 300,000 tons per year of lithium carbonate equivalent by the end of the decade. In June, Lithium America's $1 billion Cachari Olaraz project became Argentina's third lithium facility to enter production. Aramat's $735 million Centenario project is set to enter production by mid-2024, while in August, Australia's Galen Lithium began construction at its Ombre Muerto West project, which is set to begin producing lithium chloride concentrate by mid-2025. But what works for relatively small-scale brine operations does not necessarily work for large-scale copper projects, says Martin. With lithium prices climbing to record prices and investment costs of less than a billion dollars, lithium projects can live with tight capital controls, multiple exchange rates, and tariff barriers that make Argentina one of the world's most closed economies, all while retaining fat margins. For copper projects with price tags of $5 billion plus, mining companies need authorities to adopt a radically different approach to macroeconomic policy. And just a couple more paragraphs here. Such a change could be coming soon. And we have a quote from Economy Minister Nicholas Dujovny, who said in a recent seminar, quote, The central bank today has negative net international reserves of $10 billion, something we thought was impossible, end quote. At this rate of spending, inflation could reach 200% by the end of the year, a level that risks triggering hyperinflation. That makes this year's presidential elections potentially the most important in a generation. They are also the most uncertain. With voters getting ready to choose between governing left-wing coalition, the traditional center-right opposition, and a new right-wing movement which hardly existed a year ago. And then just on mining, we have Ignacio Celo Rio, president of Latin America at Lithium Americas, who says, quote, The good thing is that all candidates now see mining as an opportunity. That was not the case in the past. So, very interesting out of Argentina. Now back to Cadelco, where we have been following... Quite closely, the developments there. We have three news stories now on Cadelco. This is Reuters via mining.com. Cadelco's new CEO, Alvarado, tasked with boosting copper output. So they really want to boost their copper output. Chilean state mining giant Cadelco's incoming chief executive, Ruben Alvarado, has a mammoth task ahead of him. Boosting copper output from its lowest level in 25 years, reining in ballooning costs, and spearheading a state push into battery metal lithium. Alvarado, 64, will start as CEO on September 1st after a search to replace the outgoing André Sugaret, who abruptly announced in June he would be stepping down, citing personal reasons and, quote, complexities, and quote, running the world's largest copper producer. Well, we're going to have another story that also might explain why he stepped down here in a second. So first, Cadelco to cut jobs at head office. Here's a statement. So that first story came out August 25th. This is Reuters on August 28th. Chile state miner Cadelco said in a statement on Monday it would make further cuts to its workforce, reducing its head office staff by 10%, or 40 jobs, as it looks to reduce costs amid dwindling copper output. This follows another job cut announcement 10 days earlier, 
when Cadelco said it would trim 10% of staff or 80 jobs at its project's arm. And finally, one has to wonder if perhaps the previous CEO got wind of this. Chilean lawmakers to launch Cadelco probe amid extended copper slide. This is Reuters on August 24th. Mining projects run by Chile's state-owned copper producer Cadelco will be investigated by a congressional committee lawmakers in the lower house announced amid a prolonged fall in production of the key industrial metal. And we've been discussing this, how in these countries, a lot of pride and a lot of importance is placed on copper and the copper output and production of the country. It is crucial to the economy. The motion to launch the investigation was approved unanimously late on Wednesday, aiming to review the administration and regulation of Cadelco, the world's largest copper miner. It's like they have to find a scapegoat, almost, to blame for the political fallout of Cadelco's copper production declining. I mean, one assumes at a certain point it will decline. The probe will focus in particular on project delays and planning, as well as Cadelco's corporate structure, according to a congressional statement. The membership of the investigative committee has not yet been determined, and participating lawmakers will have two months to produce a report with its findings. Finally, uh, another headline here, Chile vows flexibility to lure investment into lithium riches. And just a quote here from Economy Minister Nicholas Grau, who said that, quote, the numbers should make sense, end quote, for the private sector, because, of course, they nationalize the lithium industry and basically are taking, as far as I understand, more than a 50% cut, or at least a 50% cut, in all of the lithium industries. So now they're putting a little bit of water in their wine to make sure to not scare off the private sector any more than they already have. Continuing on, LME warehouses bet the great metals destock is over. This is Reuters via mining.com. So we have seen on the LME that metal inventories have been increasing. Here's the column. It's been a tough couple of years to be in the metal storage business with dwindling inventories taking a heavy toll on the London Metal Exchange's global warehouse network. Exchange storage capacity contracted by almost a quarter between March 2021 and March 2023, while the numbers of registered warehouse units has fallen from over 600 to a current 453. Several smaller operators have withdrawn their LME services, and the trade houses that dominated exchange warehousing over the last decade have largely sold up to specialist logistic companies. Supply chain disruption, first from COVID-19 and then from the spike in energy prices that followed Russia's invasion of Ukraine, depleted stocks at the market of last resort, meaning less demand for warehouse spacing. However, the stock cycle may now be turning. LME storage capacity grew modestly in the second quarter of this year, the first quarterly increase in two years, amid signs that stuttering global metals demand is feeding through into rising inventory. So you can read the whole article on mining.com, but what you do see here is that inventories are starting to rise in the London Metal Exchange. And just a headline here, another metals trader says it has been hit by nickel fraud. Bloomberg News via mining.com. Another trading house has been stung after buying a cargo supposedly containing nickel that turned out to be full of near worthless rubble. The latest example detailed in lawsuits in London and Singapore is separate from the $600 million alleged fraud against Trafigura Group that shocked the trading industry earlier this year, but it involves several of the same companies. In this new case, U.S. trading house Cataman Metals alleges it paid $3.3 million for nickel from New Alloys Trading, only to discover when it opened the containers that there was no nickel inside. And finally, moreover, many of the details of what is alleged to have happened in the Cataman and Trafigura cases are similar, and the two companies' trades appear to have unraveled at almost exactly the same time. And just one more quote here from the Singapore Supreme Court, which states, quote, Each of the seven shipping containers contained 16 or 17 jumbo bags containing waste steel briquettes, which were virtually worthless. A laboratory analysis of the material did not find any nickel present. And finally, Swiss gold exports down in July due to lower shipments to China and India. This is Reuters via mining.com. And it says Swiss gold exports fell 2% in July from June as lower deliveries to China and India failed to compensate for a sharp growth in supplies to Turkey, Swiss customs data showed on Tuesday. 
Supplies to China fell by 19% in July to their weakest since May 2022, while shipments to India slumped by 60% to their lowest level since April 2023, the data showed. Meanwhile, shipments to Turkey, where demand has been strong amid high inflation, jumped by more than twofold in July and reached their highest level since February 2023. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond for context, and it is yielding 4.21%, so it is down 0.12%, and basically even over the last couple of weeks, the U.K. gilt has come down much more dramatically. It is at 4.46%, the 10-year gilt, and that is down 0.24, so a bit of a disparity there between the U.S. 10-year bond and the U.K. 10-year bond. Meanwhile, Italy has tracked almost exactly the U.S. 10-year at 4.215%. So it's basically even. I mean, amazingly enough, the Italian 10-year bond is basically even with the U.S. 10-year bond as basically it was last week. So pretty interesting over there. Turning to metal prices, gold is trading at $1,947.60 per ounce. That is $28 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $24.34 per ounce. That is $1.54 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $963.36 per ounce. That is $52 higher than last week. And palladium is also higher at $1,253.58 per ounce. That is $19 higher than last week. So all precious metals higher. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is $0.04 higher at $3.76 per pound. Iron ore is $2 higher at $108.31 per metric ton. Aluminum is a penny higher at $0.98 per pound. Lead is a penny higher at $0.99 per pound. Nickel is $0.32 higher at $9.35 per pound. Tin is also higher at $11.57 per pound. That is nine cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. And lithium is four cents lower at $29.82 per kilogram. And uranium continues to move higher, this time at a faster rate at $58.25 per pound. That is $1.25 higher than last week. So moving higher at a faster rate here. And finally, zinc is trading at $1.08 per pound. That is three cents higher than last week. So apart from lithium, all metals are edging higher. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Satish Rao for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast. He is managing director at Clario which is a consultancy that deals in natural resources. And Satish discusses really the overall strategy of U.S. critical minerals policy and really what needs to happen in order to achieve the very ambitious goals outlined in the Inflation Reduction Act and what we need more of, what we need less of, and that ultimately the U.S. really needs to speed up if it wants to meet its critical metals needs in the coming years. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Satish Rao, Managing Director at Clario for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast. Satish. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Adrian. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So for those that are unfamiliar, what is Clario? What is the organization that you are working at? We're a strategy and innovation consulting firm. I focus on the energy and resources sector, and we provide expert advice to resource companies. Uh, we do also have a growing food and agriculture practice. 
Okay, excellent. So from my understanding, it sounds like you have thoughts on the strategies from a U.S. perspective. Just for our listeners here, could you just frame the issue for us of where we are with metals, natural resources in the United States from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. It's a topic I'm fascinated by and passionate about. So my own career trajectory the past couple of decades has been by and large in the industrial sector. So 20 years consulting in the industrial sector. And a lot of that has been in energy and resources. So if I look back through my career in the lens that I've seen this industry change, we've been through at least two major attempts in energy transition that I've been a part of. Uh, the first probably unfortunately coincided in you know 2008-9 and met also with some possibly unrealistic goals of renewable energy at the time that had uh, impacted the economic downturn that, that we all faced in 2008. As things slowed down, I think probably coming into the past decade, there was more of the same without a significant uptick and uh, a significant going back to figuring out clean sheet of paper, what do we need to do with the energy ecosystem? That started to change in COP26 really in a big way, where for the first time you had the, uh, the phrase that the IEA started to introduce and that really caught on was the shift from a fuel intensive to a material intensive energy system. So the International Energy Agency really outlined the role that as the world and society starts to shift to a net zero by 2050, and certainly a few countries and sectors have announced commitments along the way from 2025, 30 to 40, 45 and 2050 net zero, that the role of metals and minerals just increases in prominence and the demands that play on society. So it's against that drop back that a lot of the recent investments, including in the US and other Western countries, where there's a number of incentives structures starting to be put into place to attract critical minerals, minerals and metals that are critical for the energy transition to happen. So I'd love to get into more of that detail and our understanding of why that's important and how that's being shaped, certainly in the US, but as an indicator into other uh, countries as well. Well, we can definitely get into it. And, you know, I was looking at an article just last week on the Inflation Reduction Act. And I knew, of course, there were, you know, incentives in there for local mining. But one thing I hadn't noticed was this idea that you couldn't get metals, I think it was by 2025, if they were from countries that were deemed more, you know, for lack of a better term, high risk, like say Russia or China. And so I thought, you know, as we know, the time from discovery to production, it's quite, you know, seven or eight years optimistically in this business. And I thought, how on earth are they going to get all the metals that they need by, you know, 2025, 2026, by eliminating a whole bunch of producers from the places you can buy at? So all to say, yeah. how is the U.S. doing in that respect? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And in fact, uh, if you look at a number of different uh, experts within these sectors, and I've seen presentations by um, the American Exploration and Mining Association, for example, that actually says the time frame from discovery to production is increasing. Depending on the mineral or metal type, you're looking at almost 15 to 20 years to take a prospect from discovery to start a Permitting, it takes 10 or more years. And then once permitting starts, it's often another seven plus years. And it's not the same in, I know, in other jurisdictions in Canada and Australia, for example, permitting might, might be much faster. But certainly in the U.S., where the Inflation Reduction Act is focused on, the timeframes are definitely much longer. So you're absolutely right. There is a dichotomy while it starts to build incentives for downstream access to minerals uh, that are critical for the energy transition, whether they're battery minerals, base metals like nickel and so on. And it's starting to incent and build downstream sectors, electric vehicles and batteries. Uh, the dichotomy is that in the US, you actually need more production as well of the metal that's needed. And that's particularly challenged in the US 
the need to go faster to meet the timeframes you mentioned. And that requires a need to engage more with the communities and indigenous people, as well as key stakeholders that worry about the environment and so on. All of them, uh, many of them are all completely legitimate. And of course, they need a process to enable that dialogue to happen. Then what do you think needs to happen or what kind of solutions do you think you could maybe contribute to this issue then? Like, what, what do you think needs to happen? I do believe there's a couple of aspects that uh, the industry needs to get together. First is addressing that dichotomy where there's a desire to build downstream capability and spur that transition. And that needs to address legitimate issues with indigenous people on and as well as permitting in order to for those to happen faster and be able to start to produce more. The second really is this is where I think the US could play to its technological strengths. We've seen a lot of activity happen around not just uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, but what that's doing with uh, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA-E, which is the equivalent of DARPA, for those that may remember the, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency from the US government. So I think technologically, there are many innovations and solutions that are needed to address environmental concerns, to address the extraction and processing of minerals effectively. And then there's also, as I mentioned first, then the dialogue with the key stakeholders to ensure that they're being adequately heard and, and due process is applied to move things forward at speed. Yeah, I think when I saw ARPA e in uh, yeah. your write-up, I got very excited to have you on the show. So could you tell us a little bit more? Like, do you know what they're up to? And I believe the E is for energy is what you're telling me before the show. So it seems like a kind of, uh, you know, I mean, DARPA, as far as I understand, the defense version, like started the internet, as far as I understand. So kind of an experimental, not quite a Manhattan Project mentality, but, you know, let's try out new things. Uh, could you just speak to us about ARPA and what might be happening there? Yes, uh, I, I believe they go by ARPA-E. They are uh, basically the same structure focused on energy and looking to address critical energy issues. And they are a significant portion of the Department of Energy budget uh, that's been approved. And just I'll give one example of uh, one of the activities that ARPA-E, that's relative to mining, uh, a very important program. And I was fortunate to be able to attend the launch for this program called uh, the Miner Program, M-I-N-E-R. And it's a clever name standing for Mining Innovations for Negative Emissions Resources. Think of it as a very similar to DARPA as a fund that is provided to universities, research institutes, startups, usually smaller companies that could utilize funding. So they're, they're a funding source uh, anywhere from two to three and a half million initial and it's very very structured program where you have to show how those funds have been utilized and and very much like a, a venture capital might uh, require you to meet certain milestones and and then within a year and a half two years potentially also this fund might provide additional capital for for growth if they've shown initial promise and the minor program it's really to accomplish negative emissions resource mining so that is it's a bold attempt to find ways, for example, to either capture and sequester CO2, reprocess existing CO2 somewhere, and really try to identify if there's any carbon negative pathways. And that can be done, for example, by looking at the CO2 reactive ores, that carbonation and mineralization of CO2 to trap them and sequester them in the ground. Uh, while at the same time extracting the metal that's needed, or in other ways uh, to sequester CO2 in mine tailings and uh, utilize tailings uh, in a way to take carbon out of the mining process. And there were a number of presentations from that. I was quite impressed to see the wide range and, and the types of universities and research institutes that presented and that have been funded. Uh, yes, yeah, about. 15 or 17 total institutes, if I recall, on the funding was about 40 million U.S. to those institutes. 
Is all the information more or less public or is there kind of a secretive aspect to certain areas of this? Although it's all public, it's just one of those things that isn't talked about because any government agency can be a little hard to navigate, but it's all in the public domain. ARPA-E, part of the um, energy.gov website that should list many of the grants and funding that has been made available to a large number of universities, research institutions. Uh, there's a couple of startups as well uh, listed in their natural laboratories. So it's a, it was a Pretty interesting mix. Some names that you, of course, expect uh, in the U.S. to be leading in mining, innovation and technology, Colorado School of Mines. Others that I would not have expected, perhaps, also. So it's great to see all of that is publicly available. Okay, excellent. So they are working on, you know, carbon sequestration. On the other hand, are they concerned at all about the metals in a sense, like there's a concern for lithium, for example, or rare earths? Do you have anything to say on basically where the United States is in regard to, you know, metals they might be short on right now? Yeah, the miner program, uh, I think there were quite a few rare earth miner programs related to rare earths. And it's one of those where, as you know, that it's very important for both uh, the mining and the processing part where the U.S. has prioritized the development and processing of rare earths, prioritized that quite a bit. So a lot of the minor programs were actually related to rare earths. So for whether it's efficient separation is a big, big deal within rare earths. And so energy efficient separation uh, there were a number of areas within that that programs that got funded were trying to get to. I don't recall anything around lithium, although there have been recent announcements by companies in another sector, in the oil and gas sector, as as they try to figure out where their strengths could be leveraged within the energy transition sector. And so a number of the oil and gas producers um, have certainly recently have shared some great announcements around lithium. Yeah, that is fascinating to watch that happen. And we actually had someone on a couple of weeks ago discussing that very issue of the oil companies starting to get into lithium. So what is your assessment then of where the U.S. is? I mean, you kind of have a pretty up close and personal view of what's happening. Are they going to reach goals? What are the pressure points here or the bottlenecks? Where are we? So that dichotomy has not been addressed, which is the desire to have more on or near or friendly assured metals. So that has not been met effectively with a strategy that encourages speed and engagement and dialogue with the indigenous people and other key stakeholders. So what we're seeing essentially is an attempt to build out the downstream activities and to address electric vehicles and batteries but I think that fundamentally we believe that's going to be challenged until the upstream mineral production and, and processing is also given the appropriate attention. So we do see where the technological strengths could be applied and literally the government is sowing the seeds in, in the funding programs that are being made available from a technological perspective, but that's not sufficient. That's That's very clear. So that is the challenge that needs to be addressed is how do you make things move at speed and in a way that the industry does not further isolate the key stakeholder groups and, and actually engages with everyone effectively. So this is interesting in the sense that, I mean, one of the main parts of the IRA was to help, again, facilitate the development, friendshore, the production of certain metals deemed critical in the United States. And yet, basically, it sounds like, in some respects, throwing money at the issue is not enough, is basically what you seem to be telling me. Yes, financing is not sufficient. Just the technology focus is by itself is not sufficient. I think that if the desire is to build more capacity in the US, there's many more structural issues that would need to happen. I mean, tackling uh, within the US, certainly tackling that what is now the from discovery to production of many of these critical minerals tackling the time frames it just there's going to be no no new mines that can be built if you think you have a prospect right now in 2023 it might take the industry 15 years and the energy transition time frames you can't really wait 15 to 17 years for that mine to start producing 
So that's the single biggest, I think, hurdle is uh, how do we move at speed? And um, one of the ways to do that is actually to engage with dialogue with the stakeholders. So that's the challenge. That's, that's where the industry is at, unfortunately. Interesting. You mentioned indigenous groups. It sounds like that's one of the main hurdles. Like if that was maybe addressed in a more positive or direct or, you know, harmonious way, for lack of a better term, do you think that would go a long way towards addressing, I guess, what we might call upstream issues in the supply chain? Uh, yes. So they, indigenous people have many, many legitimate concerns. And so in the past, they've probably rightly felt that their their voices were not sufficiently heard. So through some of the work that my colleagues, Peter Bryant and the institute that he's involved in, the Development Partner Institute is really an example of where and how indigenous people and communities uh, and other stakeholders can come together to have dialogue and, and discussion and really give them a, a seat at the table. Until that's done, it's very hard to unilaterally make decisions that can impact many stakeholders. Okay, so what have we not discussed here that you think we should talk about from your perspective? Yeah, I think it's very interesting to just, I was an outsider to mining about 12, 13 years ago, where I primarily worked with energy companies um, in the first decade of my consulting career. So coming into mining, it, what was interesting to me, especially this is a U.S.-centric view, it's one of the few industries in the world where the U.S. does not dominate. The energy industry, uh, of course, you, you see the oil and gas majors, there, there's there's quite a few successful American companies, but not in the same way in mining. So I think if the U.S. has the desire to bring a lot of the critical minerals in a more reliable, affordable way so the energy transition can occur, then it's important to recognize it's one of the few industries where the U.S. does not dominate. And so it's very important to see models in other regions of the world, and that could be Canada or Australia certainly come to mind, where I think there's a lot to learn from and understand how the U.S. could gain some of that experience and become where it was. I believe in the 80s and 90s, uh, for example, the U.S. was, was self-sufficient in copper. But now we're, we're looking at a situation where in 10 years, the U.S. might have to import more than 50% of the copper it needs, probably seven, close to 75% if some of the demand scenarios play out. So I think there's a lot to learn from other countries where a lot of this has been figured out. But certainly what struck me was that it's not in the U.S.-centric view. It's not an industry where the U.S. has dominated, but certainly in the 80s and 90s, I think, had more experience, a lot of which has been lost over the past few decades. It rings true what you're telling me, uh, Satish. So as a final question, then, how do you see this playing out if you had to speculate a little bit here? I mean, it seems like there's been an artificial deadline that's been imposed that seems very unlikely to be met. I mean, how do you see this playing out? So I think there needs to be, first of all, recognition that the dichotomy, which is really the desire and the interest to secure minerals from within the country and putting in incentives for the downstream industry, electric vehicles, transport, batteries. First, there needs to be a recognition that that's not going to be sufficient. Second, that it's not just funding or technological innovation that's going to be sufficient. So I think we're not there yet where there's adequate recognition of the enormous challenge. So first, I think there needs to be more and more voices out there that start to build a case that if, yes, if you do, do want to decarbonize industry and society by 2050, we have to move faster. So I, I think more forums like these that get that word out and provide those that actually make the regulations, uh, create the incentive structures and providing them with input, I think as an industry, more of that needs to happen. And finally, I do think that even if it's not sufficient by itself, that technological change and innovation, that's the other engine that can be ramped up in the U.S. That's the traditional strength. So if we can do more to effectively address some of the environmental issues 
and to find clever, innovative ways to do more while using less water, while using less energy, while disturbing the environment and the land less. I think all of those things also need to be on the table. So that those would be, I think, my closing thoughts is one is around raising the awareness and supporting and influencing those that are designing regulations, permitting and incentive structures. And then secondly, also continue to spur the uh, technological innovation that's much needed. Yes. I mean, just a final thought here. I mean, the elephant in the room is Congress, I suppose, on this whole conversation. Yes. And uh, I think it can be tricky, as you know, with anything that needs adjustments to regulations and the design for future incentives. So that is the elephant in the room. But part of it is bringing more recognition and awareness to the issue and then bringing that to the attention of the right folks. That would be very, very important. Satish Rao, Managing Director at Clario, thank you for joining us and sharing your insights on the Northern Miner podcast. Thank you, Adrian. Really appreciate you inviting me over to share my thoughts, and I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you once again to Satish Rao and also Ron Birnbaum of Pear Tree Canada for a wonderful show full of ideas. It felt like the Government Meets Mining show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to learn more, join us in London on October 12th and 13th at the Canadian Mining Symposium. It is a one-of-a-kind event with an incredible lineup, as you will see. Simply go to events.northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care. Take care.